Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, today's guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We have a return visit with Dr. Paul Carson, our expert infectious disease specialist and public health expert from the University of North Dakota and North Dakota State University, who's going to update us on the latest information on the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Before we do that, though, I want to talk about some local happenings here. You know, this is affecting all of our lives in some ways. Uh, Like the meme said, I really didn't expect to give up this much for Lent. So I want to go over to my partner, Andrew, who's here today. Andrew, how has this pandemic affected your life, your practice in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, it's it's really incredible to think even the, the first show that we recorded not too long ago, how much has changed since then. But I, I know for myself and for most people, it's dramatically affected everything from the shutdowns and the social isolation that are recommended and or dictated, depending on where you live, um, to even day-to-day life in healthcare. We've We've noticed a lot of stuff economically uh, from a business perspective, trying to make sure that we can provide for all the folks that work at our practice and try and find ways to make sure that we're able to do do work in a safe way. It's interesting, I think, with the the schools being la- let out and everyone being recommended to stay at home, um, we're, we're at times finding it hard to have work for everyone. At other times, we're finding it hard to keep up because the phone volume is so high. And we're finding it very frustrating when there's times there's people you would like to swab and test for it, and the test kits are not available. And that's a and we're going to talk to Paul Carson about what's going on with the test kits. We did we did see our first patient with coronavirus, though, and the thing that surprised me uh, was this patient, young, healthy, uh, early thirty year old woman, didn't look all that sick. And if it wasn't for uh, contact with a patient with coronavirus. We, we would really have never suspected. And so that underscored to me the importance of the social isolation, even apart from people with symptoms. Yeah, and again, the main reason for the social isolation is not for most of you listeners, but it's for those people who are over 60 or 70 or have some complicating health problem like heart disease or diabetes. That's right. We're doing this to try and protect them and slow down the spread of this virus, which has increased rapidly since our last recording. We want you to be aware that for the first time ever, we have been doing some intermediate between our weekly radio show uh, podcasts during the week. We've done uh, three, actually, since our last uh, radio show with Paul Carson. We did an update with Paul Carson in between. We talked to Dr. Greg Burke. He's an executive at Geisinger Medical Center in um, uh, Danville, Pennsylvania, who's also a nursing home director and a uh, rehab hospital medical director, and he's a medical ethicist. And then uh, most recently, we interviewed a Colorado pediatrician and how um, parents should be aware of certain things regarding their children. And I've been given a lead uh, that I'm going to approach this weekend, a physician who treated the SARS epidemic patients in Hong Kong in 2003, and now is treating this epidemic in 2020. And he has some comparisons. So hopefully... You uh, can find that on our podcast uh, later in the week. Yes, I, I would encourage everyone to check that out on our website for a little more Dr. Doctor and a little more in-depth because this is really touching and affecting every area of yeah, our Yeah, there's life. no way in one 52-minute show a week we can give you everything we want you to know as uh, concerned Catholics uh, who want the best medical information. And, you know, Tom, when I'm walking around outside, even just coming to record this or driving around, it's a very eerie feeling. I don't know if you feel that too, but it reminds me of the time after September 11th. Oh, yes. Where I don't know if, if it's just me, but I feel like everyone's kind of on edge uh, just in social interactions and, and whatnot. And I, I was struck by the comparison that they've been using in Washington, D.C. President Trump described this as a wartime um, and we're fighting this virus. But you know, it's it definitely has a feeling that this is truly a national crisis, although two weeks ago it sure didn't feel like that. The difference from wartime is all, all the wars since the Civil War we've been in have been fought on other soil. This is right in all of our communities. Yes. So that is different. That is really different. And in fact, I have a... Uh, 
a lifetime bucket list trip planned to see the world-famous Passion Play in Oberammergau, Germany, which is held once every 10 years. Today, the community in Germany made a decision. They have rescheduled it for 2022, two wow. years from now. Yes, Man. they do it from late May to early October every year. That's a multiple of 10. So things are changing worldwide. Well, we are now in the middle of a pandemic, which is kind of funny. Funny because on February 24th in Geneva, Switzerland, the World Health Organization said, we no longer use the term pandemic. But COVID-19 <laughs> remains an international emergency that is likely to spread further. Fast forward to Geneva, March 11th. The World Health Organization declared the rapidly spreading coronavirus outbreak a pandemic, acknowledging what has seemed clear for some time, the virus will likely spread to all countries on the globe, which seems to be true. And if you look on worldometers.info forward slash coronavirus, the country with the highest rate of infection, Vatican City. Really? Because they have one person infected. Oh. And the population is so small, <laughs> it was like over 1,284 per million. Oh, my word. So all the, all the micro countries in the world have the highest infection rates, like San Marino, um, uh, Andorra, uh, Liechtenstein, Man, Luxembourg. That's a little trivia trivia question. Tom, are you going to have a trivia question? That would have been a great one. Oh, no. I, I've got another question up my sleeve because I have to correct myself. Um, so uh, instead of going on to all that, what I wanted to point out is if you go on worldometers.info, you can see the daily new cases by country. No other website does this. And if you look at South Korea, their cases started being measurable on February 19th and seem to have bottomed out three to three and a half weeks later. Uh, same thing in China. Now, in the United States, our cases have been going up since March 2nd. It's two and a half weeks later. And what we're going to hear from Paul Carson later is that they're going to go up uh, significantly. And I don't know for how long, but I'm going to ask him. I'd be interested to hear, too, how he feels that we compare to those other two countries, because I think the flavor is a little bit different here with how it's spreading. I think so. But to the trivia question, in the last update show, the intermediate one with Dr. Carson, I asked what Lent and quarantine had in common. And Dr. Carson, to his credit, knew the answer. It was <laughs> 40 days because quarantine comes from the Italian quaranta giorni or 40 days that in Venice, they kept people apart. But in that episode afterwards, I said Venice started this in 1377. No, they started it in 1426, another city. And so the question is, what city also on the Adriatic Sea, had the first quarantine in 1377. It was actually 49 years later in 1426 that Venice did it. So this other city is not in Italy. It is on the Adriatic. And we had a listener, a young physician in that country, let me know that I got it wrong by gasp, believing that something written on the internet was true when it wasn't. So what <laughs> is the country that had the first Trentine? It was 30 days, not 40 days. We'll be back with Dr. Carson more after the break here on... Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And we are back with our special guest today. Dr. Paul Carson is back from North Dakota, where he's a consultant to the North Dakota Department of Health. He teaches at the Masters of Public Health program at North Dakota State University. He's a wise man with good advice. And now, Paul, welcome back. Tell us what's new with the numbers regarding COVID-19 in our country. Good evening, Tom and Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me back. So the, the, the numbers are unfortunately uh, worrisome. We now have in the United States uh, over 13,000 cases, 207 deaths. When you look at the incidence curve, that's the number of new cases each day. It is uh, steeply on the rise. We kind of call it in that sort of exponential growth phase. Um, it's still fairly unevenly distributed throughout the country, mostly on the coasts. Uh, New York now is up to 5,300 cases, Washington, California, each over 1,000 cases. But we're seeing, even in my, my state of North Dakota, remote, you know, kind of uh, center of the Midwest and up in the north with a pretty rural population, we now have local spread in at least one of our uh, cities. Are we still thinking that the household attack rate is around 7%? Yeah, so the, so the secondary attack rate in households has been looked at in a few different studies, and it's been as low as around 5%, averaging around 7%, and as high in one city in China up to about 15%. So 
you know, that sort of seems like a, a good news part of the story, that even when you have somebody who's sick and comes home with it, the majority of the other people in the house uh, tend not to get it. Contrast that with influenza, typically 15 to 30 percent of your household members will end up with influenza. Paul, what, what is the, uh, comparing that type of attack rate to other numbers that we see in secular media that are much, much higher, are there different types of attack rates that we should know about? Yeah, yeah, there are. So, um, you know, when we talked previously on the show, we talked about the two numbers that we want to drill down on yes. that kind of give us an idea about how bad things might be are the, are the cumulative attack rate, like how many people are ultimately going to get this, and, um, and the case fatality rate. And so you're now seeing many experts, some very smart people with fancier degrees than, you know, any of us on the call right now, you know, from Harvard and other places that are speculating that 60 to 70 percent of the population could get this. Um, I was a little circumspect about that, that um, that, uh, that really was going to ultimately happen. And I still think that's actually quite unlikely, and I'll explain why in a second here. But you have people saying that. You have people saying, I think, more reasonably worrisome levels that I think are realistic that could be 15, 20, 25 percent of the population get this. But those high numbers are attack rates that if you do nothing, if, if you just kind of let everybody kind of keep doing whatever we do and, and you don't try and mitigate it in any way, the average person will spread it to around two to two and a half more people. And, and that just goes to the next, you know, two and the next two and the next two. And you have very quick spread throughout uh, a large portion of the susceptible population. And presumably all of us are susceptible. Um, but of course, we don't do nothing. We we intervene, and so you can look at China, for example, who who've done ex extraordinarily draconian measures. Something that I I don't know that we can really uh, do here. But they brought the attack rate down. If you I did the math on this in Hubei province, which has about 59 million people. If you take the cases that they found, it was 0.1 percent of the population got infected. That's you know one out of a a thousand, even if you figure that they missed huge numbers, let's say they missed even 90% of the cases, that only bumps it up to uh, one out of 100, 1%. That's a far cry from the 60, 70%. That said, they're in complete lockdown. They are still not, you know, uh, moving. They are, um, they, they are really in, a, in kind of a uh, rigid kind of control measures. And how long can you keep that up? And what happens when you start to relax those? We don't know. Well, and, and one of the things you had mentioned in our last show also about South Korea, they were doing a really good job, and part of their strategy was the extensive testing. I know that's yeah. one of the things that we have not been very strong on here. Could you comment on where we're at with the testing? Yeah. So first, just to kind of comment on what you just said about South Korea. So they, they've taken a different strategy that has worked very well. Um, they, too, have, you know, closed some schools. Actually, their schools were kind of out for a while, and they extended that uh, um, vacation. And, and they've been a little bit more uh, strict about social gatherings and so on, but nothing like what China implemented. But what they have done is they were really aggressive about testing, and they have the capability of, uh, in that little country of doing a million tests a week. They, are, they have tested, uh, of all the countries out there, they've tested just about more than any other country per capita. And their strategy is find the cases, find all of their contacts, put all the contacts in quarantine, and then uh, test anybody who develops symptoms and then isolate them. And that's worked pretty well for them. They've dropped their uh, number of cases down very, very low. Um, we are not as draconian as China, and unfortunately, we do not have the testing capability of South Korea. This has been probably the greatest frustration we've been facing as physicians and clinicians is that, uh, you know, we've been promised to ramp up very quickly of testing capabilities, and it's not there. The health departments get allocated a certain number of tests depending on the population of your state. Those come from the Centers for Disease Control. And uh, they've been barely enough to kind of get the higher priority uh, patients that, you know, the highest risk ones, certainly not, you know, what, what we heard, frankly, the president promising that anybody who wants to can get tested, that we are a far cry from that, unfortunately. And, um, 
And uh, I know, Andrew, you've had personal experience with difficulty getting some uh, of your patients tested. Yeah, I, um, one, one of the patients I, I saw was a healthcare worker who was exposed uh, to a, a patient with coronavirus before they knew it was coronavirus, now having symptoms. You look at all the guidelines. This is a person who slam dunk needs a test. You can't get one for yeah. her today in Indiana, you know. Yeah. And so that's a person yeah. who's sick and has exposure and by the guidelines needs tested. When we talk to patients, patients are calling me all the time. My message to, to folks who especially are asymptomatic or not high risk, there's no chance, unless you're a professional athlete, that you're <laughs> going to be able to get any coronavirus testing right. at all. Right. I think one of the messages that we should have all the listeners really pay heed to is that we have to be, as a whole society here, judicious about our current state of limited testing. We, we, you know, I, I still am very hopeful within maybe a week to 10 days that uh, private industry, which is coming online more and more, I know the Mayo Clinic just brought a test online, a uh, re- reference lab that we use uh, here uh, has uh, brought a test online, and a number of these big um, uh, reference labs uh, are, are bringing tests online, and that commercial capacity hopefully will ramp up. Um, and hopefully also the CDC and state health lab capacity will ramp up. But until then, um, you know, people, first of all, absolutely, if you have no symptoms, nobody's going to test you, nor should you be tested. Just because you're worried or you're around somebody who coughed or maybe even knew somebody who knew somebody that had coronavirus, um, that's not a means for testing. Um, second would be is if you have symptoms that really aren't typical of classic coronavirus. So the classic coronavirus is fever, cough, malaise. We are learning that there are some people that may have milder illness than that. But I think if you've just got the snuffles, maybe just the snuffles and a scratchy throat, no, not, not, not now. Maybe in the future that might get included too. Maybe if you're a healthcare worker that might get included. But uh, uh, for the average person right now, we wouldn't be testing that. We would say if you're sick with, uh, you know, what seems like a viral infection, maybe it's mild and, and your likelihood of being able to be tested is low, uh, you know, pull yourself away from you know, uh, work, uh, congregations of people, and maybe even your own family kind of put yourself a little bit in the corner of the house until symptoms uh, pass. Paul, something I think that listeners want to know is how long can we expect the curve to go up? How long can we expect the number of daily cases diagnosed in the United States to rise? Yeah, $64 million question there, Tom. Yes, yes it is. That's so, why I ask it. That's why I get paid yeah, the big bucks uh, here, Tom. Tom, you ask really good there questions. You go. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, we don't know is the honest answer, but I think we can look to China and South Korea, uh, and um, they're, they're, I think, the two best examples of putting in aggressive control measures, and what did they experience? Well, they experienced rapid rise of cases for somewhere between, you know, two to maybe at the most four weeks, and then declines. Um, And so over the span of six to eight weeks, if we could follow suit, we could see a rapid rise and then uh, hopefully falling rates. But that is, again, those two countries with very aggressive control measures. More Um, aggressive than us, correct? More aggressive than we are right now. That is correct. Paul, when when can we expect either, you know, non-essential businesses to be back in regular life, or should we expect things to get more draconian going forward? Oh boy, you know, I, I we we are seeing more states with governors stepping up and saying um, non-essential businesses need to close. Uh, our governor just strongly recommended that, you know, restaurants and, uh, um, you know, bars and so on and gyms and that sort of thing shouldn't uh, be in business, uh, regular business operating hours now. Um, I I expect that will increase. I think as each state starts to see their numbers go up, you're going to see more and more states doing that, if if not the federal government asking us to do that. But then, I mean, these really become sort of almost philosophic questions, Uh, you know, how long do you grind civilization to a halt, if you will, you know, to to prevent this this burden of disease? And uh, those are very difficult questions. I mean, uh, and it was it's been rightly pointed out. If you do what, for example, Wuhan, China has done, lock everybody up basically into their apartments and homes, and close all businesses for prolonged periods of time, then what kind of other stresses and illnesses might you see coming from that type of 
you know, stress, mental difficulty, uh, and decreased access to health care for other problems. Um, you know, there may be a trade-off there that we have to try and balance. Okay, Paul, let's say numbers go up radically for the next two weeks. People are going to get mm-hmm. worried. What do you advise for them as far as how they approach things? And what signs of hope or ideas of hope do you have to offer? Well, I think there's I think there's several things that uh, that are hopeful. Um, one is that we have countries that have done it, and and then there's also countries that really stopped it from ever taking off. Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, all really stopped it before it really was able to get a foothold. So that suggests that, and we don't have drugs or vaccines yet. So that suggests traditional public health measures, case finding, contact tracing, quarantining the well who were exposed isolating the sick who have it, those measures work. Um, And social distancing, uh, those things are hopeful to me. And what we need to do is buy enough time to accomplish two things. One, flatten out the curve so it's not such a fast, steep rise. Flatten it out so our healthcare system can take care of people because we don't want to get so many cases coming so fast that we overwhelm our hospitals and our ICUs. If we can flatten out the curve, take care of the people who are getting sick by stretching out uh, the cases over time, we hopefully buy time to get more information on drugs and vaccines. We and, already have some information about those. So, right. Um, so a drug right now, hydroxychloroquine, something I've used uh, pretty often in dermatology for certain connective tissue diseases, used in malaria. Yeah. Tell us what we know about hydroxychloroquine for coronavirus. Yeah, so uh, there's there's two drugs there. One is called chloroquine. The other one is a, a closely related relative of it, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, they've been used, as you suggested, in rheumatologic diseases. Uh, they've been used in, and the chloroquine has been used for malaria. They're old drugs. We're use, we, we have a lot of experience with them. We, we, we in infectious disease uh, use them and know how to use them fairly well. Um, it's been shown in the test tube, basically, that these drugs really at, at achievable levels of what we, we dose them at um, can significantly decrease the entry of the virus into cells. And now there's um, some very early clinical data, not, not a slam dunk yet, but some promising early clinical data that those drugs actually help. One small study out of China suggested that patients did better on it, but they didn't. They didn't give us any details in the study that they put. You know, they're whipping out these studies so fast to sure. get information out. They're they're not doing them in quite the the peer reviewed way we would like. But a Chinese study suggested that it showed some clinical benefit in about 100 patients that they studied in. There's another another study that was just public just released last night um, that looked at the viral load, like how much virus you shed when you take these drugs, and they compared people who were on it mm. uh, compared to similar people who were not on it, and it markedly lowered oh. the, amount of, the amount of virus that was shed. They didn't, they didn't look at the clinical outcomes to say, did they get better faster? Did more people survive? Did, uh, did they get out of the hospital quicker? Uh, we would really have liked to have seen that data, but they did show pretty significant reductions and did they in show, the level of virus. Yeah, what kind of reductions? Like ninety percent reduction, or how yeah, did they measure? Well, you know, I'd have to look up at those graphs. Uh, actually, I might even have it here. Let me take a quick percentage. Of, uh, what they looked at was the percentage of patients who had uh, cleared their sample by. Uh, day three, day four, day five, day six. Okay. And so the the people who were on, uh, let me let me take a kind of closer look at this. The um, people who were still positive, um, like at day three, for example, who got the hydroxychloroquine, you had about fifty to sixty percent of people who got that that were still shedding some virus at day three, as opposed to like ninety ninety five percent that didn't get it. So shedding by none. day six. Yeah, shedding none by day three. You know, you had almost 40% that were shedding um, shedding none, or, you know, no longer could find it. And by day six, you've got about 55% that no longer shed it at all compared to still almost 90% still shedding it that didn't get the drug. Wow. And oddly, when they combined that with another drug that we use quite commonly, azithromycin, commonly known as the Z-Pak, yeah. uh, that even dropped it a lot lower. In fact, that had shut down almost all shedding by day three. But there is some concerns about using those two drugs in combination because they can both 
have some effects on the heart that uh, that we have to kind of watch carefully if if we were to use those in combination. So back to the curve, Paul. How yep. long would you expect the the numbers to go up in daily cases in the U.S.? Whether what's I, best? I've seen numbers yeah. even as far as into June, but we would see a peak. Yeah. Is that accurate? I I would so if I were to guess with the current level of control measures we're doing, which are good, not but not super aggressive like uh, these other countries, and our testing capability is not anywhere near where those countries are yet. If I were to guess, I would say we're going to keep going up for another four weeks, um, and then hopefully we'll have better testing. We'll have you know more people buying in because I still see see people saying I'm I think this is just nothing like it's just like the flu I'm doing whatever That's I did before. That's one of the key questions I, I have. How do we convince people that this is a big deal? Don't go to spring break in Florida if you're a college student. How do we do that? Right. Uh, listen to your show. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, great uh, answer, Paul. You're so and, good. <laughs> and, and and then um, and then honestly, uh, this is this is unfortunately true of a lot of things. Like when we're trying to get the message out about, you know, you really do need these vaccines, or you really do need this preventive treatment. When bad things start to happen, people become believers, and they're going to start seeing friends and loved ones and relatives. Um, getting this, and then we then we will have a lot more buy-in. But it would be great if we could get that before our friends and loved ones and relatives are all getting sick. Paul, I had a question uh, before we move off the topic of the medications as well. There's been reports yeah. about avoiding certain medicines like ibuprofen. Mm. Um, is that something that you would recommend if people do feel ill and, and develop the coronavirus? Yeah, I was just on a physician advisory group uh, to the, our state health department, and that topic came up and was batted around quite a bit. That was from a, a really tiny study, I think, in France or somewhere in Europe, and it was like four kids who kind of seemed to do worse that were put on ibuprofen. And then a, a number of other kind of looks at that suggest that probably isn't the case. And um, I don't remember which uh, group... There was a group, uh, one of the professional societies that formerly, for, formally looked at this and is not recommending avoiding acetaminophen uh, or avoiding ibuprofen. They don't think know. that that is necessary. And, and as far as prednisone, we had talked about that briefly before. Is that something still to be avoided? Probably. Um, you know, sometimes intensivists like to use that in certain mm -hmm. stages of ARDS or certain uh, situations where there might be relative adrenal insufficiency in very sick people. Potentially I think it might still be considered there. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, exactly. Um, but not as a, like, let's do this to tamp down the... Let's talk about why you might think about doing Can that. Can we take a, a break right so, now, Paul? We're halfway yeah. through. Uh, we'll regroup after the break here on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to Dr. Paul Carson about the coronavirus epidemic. Paul, um, you know all things about the coronavirus. <laughs> and so to put you right on the spot, when do I get to go to Mass again? Oh, gosh. You want me to be a prophet, too, as well as an infectious <laughs> disease doctor. What do, what do um, we have to see from, from, a, from a public health standpoint where we could all say that it is safe to go back to Mass as a community? Um. I so this was a I, I think I mentioned to you, to you guys off air you know a little bit ago that I I was called by um, our vicar general about about our diocese and it was a very painful discussion we had about whether mass and services should be suspended and I I think because you know it's, mass certainly meets that criteria of you know gatherings of more than ten or fifty people. And um, even if we could try and space ourselves out, it becomes difficult. And, and so that does put the community at risk and you know, individual members uh, at risk and then whoever they go back to. I, I think for, before we can start seeing relaxation of uh, these kind of distancing measures, we really need to be past the peak, probably well on the other side of the downhill side of the epidemic curve, meaning cases are going down you know, substantially each day. Uh, gone, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think we, we all feel that this is an important, a very important thing for us, especially in a time of struggle and strife and suffering. And, uh, you know, uh, my daughter, who's a focus missionary, who's home now because she, the university she works at is on leave, um, you know, was in tears over this. And uh, I, I feel that. And I, I think we will have to revisit this, but probably well past the peak. 
So we've got to be prepared potentially for months would be a, a safe thing to say. I think for sure weeks, um, possibly months. Wow. Travel plans. When might it be safe to travel again? Good question. Uh, again, I think we'd want to be seeing uh, most of the countries that we're talking about uh, well on that downhill slide of, uh, of cases. I actually think you know, travel to various destinations is, uh, is going to be less of an issue than the issue of who you, you know, congregate with. I'm in a plane with a bunch of people. I'm in an airport with a bunch of people. I'm going to tourist sites with a bunch of people. Except for the really hot spots of the world, which are like Italy right now and, and Spain and certain parts of Europe, maybe soon certain cities in the United States. You know, very soon, much of the world, I think, is going to be experiencing sustained local transmission. So it doesn't really matter if you're in one place or another. It, it may not matter so much. But the idea of, of social distancing is difficult with travel. So I, I think we have to see uh, certainly the country we're going to and probably the country that we're leaving, you know, on that downhill uh, side of the epidemic curve. Um, I would hope that, uh, you know, there might be a little ray of hope on some things that summer could bring some relief. That's a question mark still, but there is some evidence that that's possible. Um, so if you have travel plans in like July and August, I might not cancel those yet. I might kind of hold your breath and watch a little bit longer. I'm canceling my, we were going on a pilgrimage, uh, an Ignatian, uh, kind of a sort of an Ignatian spiritual pilgrimage in northern Spain at the end of May. I'm canceling. Wow. You well, said that there's good news. We would love that. Kids and pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of, of glimmers of good news here is that children, uh, good, uh, good news there is that children seem to be at very low risk for morbidity and mortality. I still, uh, last I had looked uh, in, in most of the places I've been trying to look at this, um, where, that have reported on age-adjusted mortality, no deaths under the age of nine, very, very rare uh, up to the age of 19. Um, you know, just young people tend to do well. That said, there are reports of people in their 20s or 30s that are actually in the hospital or even in the ICU, but the vast majority of them survive it and get through it. So kids, young people uh, tend to do well. Kids even don't get, they don't, very few of them even get hospitalized. Very, very rare. Well, why so that's is that, good. Paul? I don't know. We don't know, but there's a, some speculation as to, you know, a couple reasons uh, why. Um, it appears that this virus attaches to a receptor in the airways called angiotensin II receptor. Um, it's thought maybe that uh, those aren't really developed very well until you get older, so that they might not have as much of their respiratory epithelial cells that are susceptible to uh, the viral attack. That's speculative, but it's been tossed around, I've seen in several places. I personally wondered if you know, kids who kind of tend to be little germ factories when they're young and in daycare and in school and so on, you know, get lots of, uh, get lots of colds, lots of coronaviruses, the, the ones that we know about. I mean, we, we've been infected with corona, our own human corona, coronaviruses for a long time. They cause the common cold. They're one of the main causes of the common cold. Maybe those other coronavirus infections, which they get more often, give some antibodies that have a little cross-protection. Uh, we don't know. But it's still a bit of a mystery, but that's a very interesting question. Pregnant women. Pregnant women. So far, not, not a huge amount of data there, but so far it does not seem to increase risk to the woman her, herself. We know that you know, pregnant women who get influenza are at much greater risk for severe disease. That does not seem to be the case with uh, coronavirus. Um, similarly, uh, so far, again, not huge studies, but a couple different reports coming out suggesting that there is not any evidence of uh, tr uh, placental uh, uh, crossing of the virus. It does not seem to get to the fetus at all, and it does not seem to uh, cause any problems with the baby, um, no, no increased uh, risk of pregnancy loss or anything like that yeah, so far, um, which is good, yeah. Paul, how far away are we from any potential vaccines for this? So uh, the issue with vaccines are that we actually have technology that can, uh, you know, almost flip on a dime candidate vaccines. Uh, we have very great capability of putting out um, theoretic potential molecules that could, could work. 
and there's a number of them already uh, out there uh, to be tested. Actually, the first dose of one of the candidate vaccines was given, I think, last Friday. Um, the problem comes in the FDA approval process that we need to get a vaccine through the approval pipeline. The FDA requires that they go through three phases of studies to prove that it's safe and prove that it's effective. And, and I know a lot of people would say, what the heck, you know, we're in a pandemic. Well, let's just shortcut that process. The problem is, is that there have been many vaccine candidates, you know, over the years uh, that have shown to be, you know, they can be harmful. And even in some rare circumstances, they can augment the infection. So we can't just, you know, take something that sounds good and crank it out and, and put it out there. It needs to go through this process. And that typically takes 12 to 18 months. Tell us what flattening the curve means and why it's so important. Sure. So if you kind of think about your, you know, what you learned in, you know, math class or, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in your statistics class or whatever, you, you, you know, the bell-shaped curve kind of is, is, is what we see often with an epidemic curve. There's a rapid rise up and, uh, and then it starts to come back down as, uh, as the infection either kind of burns itself out or you put in control measures that bring it down. That bell-shaped curve, if you will, can be really narrow and high, or it can be stretched out and kind of, uh, you know, lower and more flat or elliptical. We really want it to be stretched out and uh, flatter, because if we get that um, high, narrow spike, it means our hospitals and healthcare systems are overwhelmed, and that's what has happened in northern Italy just very uh, distressing tales of what they've gone through. How well are we prepared to not have the Italian experience? I think, uh, I, I, you know, I see uh, all of my colleagues in healthcare, you know, hearing those stories, listening to their colleagues in intensive care and in hospital medicine in Italy. So I, I see the healthcare system realizing we get this, we need to be really on top of this. And so you, you hear most healthcare workers saying, believe this, take this seriously, help us to be able to help you by doing all the things that are being asked of you, social distancing, uh, you know, pulling yourself, especially pulling yourself away if you're sick, um, hopefully at some point getting tested if we're sick uh, and having access to that, that ubiquitous testing. Um, I, I think we're getting that message. I hope that we're not uh, too late for that. We, our pace of increase is pretty similar to the pace of increase that Italy saw at the beginning of their epidemic, although ours is stretched out over a much bigger landmass. So, you know, hopefully we still have time to flatten that out. And this happened in the flu pandemic of 1918-1919 with the Spanish flu. You've sent me a graph that shows the difference between St. Louis and Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, so that, that, that's been written about. Actually, there's a study sort of publishing these two cities' approaches to the great influenza, the, the Spanish flu or the 1918 flu. And in Philadelphia, uh, you know, the first case uh, appeared uh, in mid-September, but they, they didn't take it very seriously, and they waited actually a couple weeks before they started to do anything to, like, do social distancing. In fact, they let a scheduled parade go ahead and happen, even though there was some people that protested that and said we shouldn't be doing this. Um, St. Louis, on the other hand, when their first case appeared on October 5th, they put in public health measures two days later and said, uh, close schools, uh, you know, uh, keep to yourselves, uh, don't, don't go to public gatherings, and they had markedly different mortality rates. The Philadelphia experience was uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, five times as many deaths as St. Louis. And this was before they really had any treatments, even ventilators or supplemental oxygen for patients, correct? That's right. So just just these well-established, well-known public health measures of social distancing and 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 isolation and quarantine, they did those too. Uh, were very really helped. I mean, it didn't get rid of uh, the great flu there, but it really stretched it out so that they were able to manage it much better, and it saved lives. What do you think about the national closure of dentist's office? I just learned about that, uh, I don't know, yesterday or the day before, and um, 
I think it's probably a good idea. I mean, for the most part, these are elective procedures. Uh, lots of what dentists do are aerosol-generating procedures. I mean, we, and we know that the virus actually, you can find fairly decent levels of the virus in just regular old saliva. So in them, them doing spraying and drilling and, you know, all the things that dentists do is really an ideal way to kind of spread that virus in, in an office and to those workers. It's, it's interesting to me the idea of elective versus essential as well because one of the things that I do in my practice is colonoscopies. I do them at two mm. hospitals, and one hospital yeah. said no screening colonoscopies, only emergent. Yeah. The other one said even the screening ones can be very important. Is there going to be any standardization as to what's essential and not essential medical care? Yeah. Um, um, the Centers for uh, Medicare Services just issued guidance on this today, I think it was, and they kind of put into different tiers or categories what they consider, um, you know, lower acuity, lower, you know, necessity. And it was things like uh, routine endoscopies or screening endoscopies were kind of recommended to, to not be doing those at this time. And then elective surgeries, uh, I, somewhat, that's somewhat in the eye of the beholder. I, I don't have that document pulled up in front of me now, but they, do, they have ranked those. And, I, and I've heard a number of my surgeon colleagues saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I think this is kind of necessary and, you know, maybe not. But I think part of this is to save personal protective equipment, you know, the gowns, the masks. Right the gloves that, that are used on these kind of procedures, we, we don't have um, unlimited supplies of those, and we want those saved for, for when, if and when we have to take care of people with coronavirus. Paul, it's time to get philosophical, and you are good okay. at that. Andrew and I like doing that. You sent me an opinion piece from March 12, 2020, by David Brooks in the New York Times. The title is Pandemics Kill Compassion Too." You may not like who you're about to become. And he points out that some, you know, one-time disasters like hurricanes or earthquakes bring people together. But he mentions that pandemics where social distancing is a virtue often drives them apart. What kind of reflection have you done on this as a, as a public health official? Yeah, a number of different things. Um, I, I think David Brooks is right. I think we're going to get a real good mirror held up to uh, us and, and what we are. And what I hope and what I pray is that we're going to see the better angels of our nature here uh, come out. And I think we, we tend to see both. Um, I, you know, we see, I, I was really struck by the nursing home in Seattle that had just this horrendous number of cases, horrendous number of the healthcare workers in that nursing home getting sick. And people from all over, healthcare workers from all over the area called up and volunteered to go and work there and help. You know, that's just, uh, you, see, you see sometimes heroic uh, measures from, from uh, people like a number of people in healthcare. On the other hand, I heard about people stocking up on buying guns and, you know, uh, weapons because uh, they're worried about sort of, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic kind of uh, thing. And, and you wonder what, what they're thinking with that. I'm also struck by, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit offline on the, uh, a book that I read a number a couple years ago, Rodney Stark's book. Uh, Rodney Stark is a uh, sociologist and historian at Baylor University, and he wrote a book called uh, The Rise of Christianity, uh, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement <laughs> Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. And he, and he asks in that book, why the heck did this happen? Like, why did this sort of, you know, nothing cult out of the, uh, out of Palestine <laughs> become, become the dominant force within, within really a couple of centuries. And he, he gives a number of reasons why that is, but one of them really struck me in there in that he, he notes that there was a couple of, you know, actually probably several different major plagues in the Roman Empire in the first uh, two to three centuries. And the typical thing that happened during these plagues uh, was that people would flee the city. They would, they would scatter, and they left the sick and dying to die. Um, the Christians acted and behaved very differently. Uh, it was noted that the Christians, um, these new converts to this new religion, stayed back to care for the sick and dying. Turns out when you do that, uh, actually more people survive when you feed them and water them and, uh, <laughs> and tend to them. Uh, and so they found first that there was greater survival rates in these people who were taking care of often their own, their fellow Christians, but others as well. And two, it, it made such an impression on a lot of the people about their courage and really kind of 
heroism with that, that it, it was attractive to a number of people. And he notes with some sort of careful data that he's gone in, in his research that there was large spikes in conversions after each of these epidemics to Christianity. And uh, I certainly hope that's what we will uh, reflect back with this mirror, that you know, that we as Christians will be uh, the people who step up to be the most courageous, to be uh, the most caring, the most compassionate, that we don't uh, lose our compassion. Well, and even following these directives can be a sign of solidarity, right, to, yes. to our brothers and sisters in Christ, even though it, it's not as touchy-feely as so many other things, just the opposite. Um, it is a sign of solidarity to make these sacrifices for the health of others. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Andrew, because um, because on the one hand, it sort of feels like, you know, it, it kind of pushes you to be every man for himself, but there can be a solidarity in that. And I think we maybe mentioned on the, the podcast that wasn't aired, but is on your, on your, uh, um, available on your podcast, that, you know, there was this just, you know, kind of charming video of, uh, of the Chinese all holed up in their apartments, all, you know, kind of stuck there sticking their heads out their windows with their masks on, yelling to one another that we can do this together, you know, we can beat this, you know, hang in there, brother, hang in there, sister. And, you know, that's that's uh, really a, a wonderful example of that kind of solidarity. I, I tend to think that this is who we were made to be as physicians. This is a time for us to, to be who God made us to be. And, and I think for those of us physicians uh, who see other physicians closing their offices out of solidarity to protect people from possible exposure. On the other hand, it's like, I want to be in the middle of it doing something important. And I think those of us who can offer something, it's more likely that a pandemic will make us better. But those who are isolated by it, I think they're the ones at the greatest risk. What do you think? I, I think that's true. I, I think, you know, we can find particularly being in healthcare, great purpose and meaning by putting ourselves out there to, to help with this in whatever capacity we can. And I'm struck by those doctors in northern Italy. They oh. said there is no such thing as a dermatologist, a rheumatologist, a plastic surgeon. He said we're all coronavirus doctors. And um, and they're even training. He said dermatologists and rheumatologists how to run ventilators. Which wow! I, uh, yeah. So you know, buck up there, Tom. Uh, you're, 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 you don't know what you got to be called. I'm, I'm going to be calling my pulmonologist on the way home from the studio. Paul Carson, <laughs> right. thank you so much for being with us for another update episode. And I have a feeling uh, we're going to be doing this again. Are you willing to be I, in there with in fact, us? You're right. I, I am. Thank you. Very good to be with you guys. Thank you. God bless you, thank Paul. You, Paul. And we'll be back with the end of the show in just a moment. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, and we have the answer, the corrected answer, to last week's trivia question today. Yes. Uh, This was the interim episode with Dr. Carson. uh, When I asked what Lent and quarantine had in common, the answer was correct. It's 40 days. But the supplemental information was incorrect that the quarantine started in Venice, Italy in 1377. The year was correct, but Venice didn't start a quarantine until 1426. But there was another city on the Adriatic Sea that started a Trentine, a 30-day quarantine in 1377, where they left sailors on outlying islands off of this city for 30 days before letting them into town to make sure they weren't infected with the plague. Unfortunately, it didn't work because the plague is carried on fleas on rats, and the rats would often swim into the city and bring the plague with them anyway. A for effort. That's right. (laughs) They were trying something, but it didn't work. So anyway, shockingly, the Internet was wrong about it being Venice that started this. So what is the other city on the Adriatic Sea that started the quarantine with the Trentine? It is Dubrovnik. Yep. Right. Dubrovnik. Croatia. And uh, my grandmother actually came from Croatia. And Ivan, a young physician, recently graduated med school, corrected me online. He's been incredibly friendly. Ivan, thank you so much for letting me know that one of my uh, forefathers' countries started the quarantine in 1377. And Dubrovnik, by the way, I have been there. Beautiful city. Um, And thank, thank you for listening over in Croatia. I know you guys are right in the thick of things right now, so we appreciate your example. Because they border northern Italy. That's right. And they've been doing everything they can. So, dobar dan to all of our friends in Croatia. 
<laughs> and Andrew wanted to mention for a minute something important about telemedicine. Yes, one of the things that's happened this past week is that uh, President Trump has expanded telemedicine for all Medicare beneficiaries for your regular office visits. Some visits won't it won't work because you have to be evaluated, but a lot of things can be done that way. Talk to your doctor, check the the, the office. Um, the office website, if they have it, this is going to be available for many people. I had my first telemedicine visit today, uh, two of them, and it went great. So I anticipate during this emergency, that's going to be a big part of our practice. And in fact, our office tonight had a meeting just before we did the recording uh, where we are also trying to get it ramped up to go Monday next week, the same way, serve our patients' needs uh, as safely as we can. And we're really thankful that now Medicare is willing uh, to support this. It would be nice to see the commercial insurers get on board as well. Right. And we're coming up with a, a low-cost option for them to pay out of pocket a, a flat fee uh, and, and many people are willing to pay that for safety. Well, thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We come to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We'd like you to please hit that share button on your podcast app. The more people you share this with, the more that will hear this good news. Please invite a friend that can also listen at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Please rate and review us. It helps more people find us. And please send us your questions or tell us how you heard something on the show. Correct us if we're wrong. And we would be Like Yvonne did. Like <laughs> Yvonne from Croatia. That's right. And be sure to tune in next week as well for the next update with coronavirus. Yes, this is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.